Welcome. I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, we are in a series of messages about uh, home. Uh, it's called the Household Code section in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Uh, you're welcome to turn there. I invite to, I ask you to turn there uh, this morning. Uh, last week, we uh, considered a, uh, the role of wives in submission to their husbands. And I just want to let you guys know you're really in luck this morning because I'm an expert on this topic. And so we're going to give it another week. I really have a lot of experience with wives submitting to their husbands. Actually, uh, I told Christy yesterday, I said, the only thing harder than preaching a sermon on wives submitting to their husbands is having to do it again the next week. <laughs> so um, hopefully you'll have some margin with me and um, we'll have some margin with each other, give each other some margin as we climb into this, this again Uh, And I'll explain to you here in a moment where we're going. But I want to start first with prayer. I want to pray for another local church. And I want to pray um, about how we spend these next few minutes. Let's pray. God, this morning we want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Pecan Grove Church of Christ just right down the road. Lord, I'm realizing we've been here 14 years. And I can't remember that we've ever prayed for them uh, before on a Sunday morning. And uh, Lord, I, I want to... Uh, ask you, we want to ask you to bless them this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray for their pastors and their elders, their teachers, their um, families that are gathering. Lord, we pray that they are enjoying you and pray that they are are gathering together as part of a celebration, that it's not a, um, uh, a somber, uh, sad occasion, but one, uh, a time to celebrate and enjoy our risen Lord who is seated and reigning and ruling and uh, who is a wonderful groom to the bride. Lord, we pray that you are uh, giving uh, Pecan Grove uh, Church of Christ some uh, wonderful problems like parking issues and uh, classroom space and seating issues and pray that you would just grow them, Lord, uh, for your glory and uh, use them in this community to be salty, bright, and aromatic. Uh, Lord, I want to pray too about how we spend these next few minutes. I confess some nerves and um, uh, dealing with some complicated questions, and uh, Lord, I, I pray for first for those who are, who are bringing uh, difficult experiences into this room this morning. That just even the the comment about, or even the notion of a wife submitting to her husband, uh, comes with a lot of pain, even uh, fear, uh, worry, anxiety. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that maybe we can help with some of that, that maybe through your word that the Holy Spirit can can, um, put some medicine on that and help um, folks who might be struggling with this notion. Lord, I I pray too this morning that that, uh, those who are moving in this kind of design will be encouraged uh, to press on, to hold uh, marriage dear, to hold our roles within marriage as dear. Lord, I pray, too, in this context this morning that for those who may be single, who may have been previously married or not married yet, Lord, that everybody in this room can recognize that ultimately we're betrothed to the greatest groom in the world that's ever been or ever will be. Lord, so I pray that everybody in here this morning will come as a worshiper this morning, ready to receive uh, instruction on what it means to be a wonderful bride enjoying and following and submitting to our Savior. Um, We're entrusting this time to you, Lord, Uh, praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. I read a couple of articles this week, uh, interesting timing. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I didn't see many recent articles on marriage. 
There was an article this week in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, someone forwarded it to me, and um, apparently it popped, on the, popped up on the Apple News as one of the top stories uh, on marriage and what has happened to marriage in the last uh, 15 to 17 years. Uh, some data uh, was shared in this, in this article that in the year 2000, between 25 and 34-year-olds, 55% of 25 to 34 year olds were on their first marriage and were married. Uh, and 34% were not married yet. Okay, had not married previously and had not been married yet. Now, 15 years later, okay, those figures again 55% married, 34% unmarried. Okay? Then 15 years later in 2015, the same age group, 40% are married. And 53% aren't married at all and haven't been married yet. Okay, so those, realize those numbers have almost completely switched and swapped in the last 15 years. This, uh, the, the, the writer of this article suggested that a few different reasons that people might think of why that might be, but one of the, the, one of the reasons that he came up with, or she, I, didn't, I wasn't sure of the gender of the writer, um, suggested that it's because sex is so easy for men that they don't have to have any sort of commitment or promise of a commitment to get sex. So that it's just, why bother with marriage? Because I get what I ultimately want. What a sad statement of our times. And the tone of the article was not like, isn't this terrible? Isn't this tragic? It was very matter of fact that, oh, well, maybe marriage is becoming passe. Maybe it's old news. Maybe it's going the way of parachute pants. Parachute pants were awesome in the day, but they're old news now. Uh, I read another article um, about marriage in Iceland. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was on CNN uh, just this week. Um, apparently, two-thirds of Icelandic babies born uh, these days in, in Iceland are born to unwed mothers. And marriage is just sort of unnecessary or deemed mostly unnecessary in Iceland, uh, there was a quote from a lady that had three different children by three different fathers, never been married. Her quote was, you can choose your own life. This is the benefit of not being married and just procreating and just, I guess, uh, drinking water. There's a lot of water in Iceland, really cool. Uh, glacier water, you know, and tourism. That's a big thing in Iceland. And you can choose your own life. It sounds like in Iceland that uh, marriage is becoming... Uh, passe, like parachute pants. Um, so I think we're in an important study. I really think we're in an important series because we don't want that to become old news for us. We don't want it to become a garment that's in our closet that we laugh about, but we want it to actually be something that we use and walk in and enjoy and celebrate. So I think we're in a very important series. And last week was, as I mentioned before, was uh, the first of two sermons, this is the second one, on wives submitting to their husbands. So if you would, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read our passage. This was home base for us last week. I'm going to spend about three minutes summarizing last week's message, because I realize some of you may not have been here uh, last week. And I encourage you, if you weren't, to please listen to a more thorough exposition. But I will spend a few minutes sort of uh, grabbing the equipment uh, before we step into the rest of our morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands, in verse 22. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We built a bookshelf last week. And Corey, you can go ahead and put that up. This bookshelf we sort of fleshed out this last week uh, and, and gave names to the books that are in the bookshelf. Uh, we dealt first with the bookends. The bookends are very clear commands in this passage to wives to submit to their own husbands. We, de- we defined it last week. We defined it a few weeks ago when we dealt with submission one to another that submit means to be subject to, to place or rank under, to yield. So the call that we considered last week, the command that we considered last week that we want to keep in view this morning is the bookends on this bookshelf are for, is for wives to uh, contextually develop last week, to gladly and freely follow the leadership of their husbands. The reason last week we considered is because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It's God's design cover to cover. It has been for thousands and thousands of years. It's God's design, and that's reason enough. The manner we considered last week from the phrase, as to the Lord, gives us a sense of where the the wife should look. As she's submitting to her frail, feeble, sometimes, maybe oftentimes disappointing husband, she is to have like a bullseye on Christ. Christ is her target as she is submitting to her husband. The Christian wife is to eagerly follow and humbly follow her husband as she would the Lord, because she's ultimately, if Christ is in view, she's ultimately following the Lord as she does so. So wives, a really cool encouragement, submitting to your husbands, yeah, that frail, feeble, oftentimes or sometimes disappointing human being can be worship. In fact, it is worship when you do so with Christ in view. Man, that's a great um, reason and manner. And lastly, last week we considered the motive or the motivation The motive and motivation for the wife to submit to her husband is the realization and the understanding that her role represents something. It's more than just about her and this man. It symbolizes the relationship of the church to Christ. There's a lot at stake in this design. This gives some purpose. It gives some shape. It gives some meaning for the wife where she can make sense of what this thing is about and why is it important. The gospel... The good news of Christ and the church, the story of Christ being betrothed and eventually wed to his people, this is what's at stake. And the Christian wife is to keep this in view. And all of this, consider just consider these, these realities and dynamics. We should all realize that it's far from passe. It's very practical, very real, very relevant, and just as, as important now as it was a couple thousand years ago when this passage was written to the church in Ephesus. Now, last week I think I was more preacher than shepherd. Last week we had the benefit of just exposing the passage. We didn't deal with a lot of difficult issues last week. But this week, you can take this slide down. This week I want to be more shepherd than pastor. I want to come alongside wives or future wives or maybe even some husbands or young, young adults in here or even children that might, be, uh, that might be snagged on this command, that might be struggling with this or might be dealing with some, some other issues. Um, I, wanna, I want to do that this morning. In some ways, I want to almost just sit beside you this morning and be a gentle shepherd 
So I want, I'm sort of coaching myself. Sometimes when I am presenting an argument, and Scott has, has laughed at me for years about this, I present a straw man, and then I beat the ever-living snot out of him right in front of everybody. I don't want to do that this morning because the straw man, uh, there isn't a straw man. We're talking about real people this morning. We're talking about half of our uh, people who are likely or potentially carrying some sort of baggage in regards to this topic this morning. So I want to use kid gloves, but I want to be thorough too. I don't want to deal with anything uh, with conjecture or opinion. I want to go to God's word. So let me just go ahead and give you a sense of where we're going this morning. We're going to deal with four questions. I emailed those questions out this week, but in case you didn't get the email or in case you weren't here last week and you don't know what those questions are, I'll share with you what they are so you have kind of an outline for the morning. The first question I'm going to deal with is, does this charge to Christian wives to submit to their husbands mean that men are superior to women? Good question. Second question we're going to deal with this morning is, um, could this have simply been a cultural command for Christian wives in ancient Ephesus? That's a good and important question. And you might be asked these questions in your neighborhood or in your workplace, too. So if you're sitting here and you think of all the things that I've, considerations that I've presented so far, and you're like, okay, none of those have really hit me, then don't just be about you for a few minutes and consider that you might be equipped for something this morning so that you can minister to someone else with the, the word, with something that's true. Okay, so just consider that. Okay, and the fourth question we're going to deal with, I, I switched the last two questions and put them out of order for, for a purpose you'll see later. What is the Christian wife to do with this command if the husband isn't leading well? Actually, that's, that's the third. What is the Christian wife to do with this command if the husband isn't leading well? That's a really good question. Okay, and then the fourth question, how far does this submission thing go? Is the wife called to just say yes to everything? All right, so we're going to deal with these questions. Like I said, we're not going to, uh, I don't want to be brief. I don't want to be ad nauseum or anything and overdo it, but I, I want to deal with them faithfully in these next few minutes because we're talking about people. We're talking about real questions and real issues. So let me give you a map of where we're going in the Word. You can jot these passages down. Genesis chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn there now. Genesis chapter 1. It's been home base for us in this series and will continue to be. Genesis chapter 1. Another passage we're going to go to after that is 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to go to Philippians 4, 8, 1 Peter 2, and then back to Genesis chapter 3. So if, if you're visiting this morning, you start your first time here, I hope you're finding some comfort in knowing, man, we're going to go to the Word. We're going to go to something that's not conjecture and not opinion and see what this Bible has to say. That list again, Genesis 1, 1 Corinthians 11, Philippians 4, 1 Peter 2, and Genesis 3, dealing with the first question here, does this charge to Christian wives to submit to their own husbands mean that men are superior to women? Genesis chapter 1, I think, will give us some insight. Let me get there myself. I'm going to begin in verse 26. This is the account of the sixth day of creation. Okay, And chapter 2 is a more thorough or detailed account of the creation of man and woman. Okay, this is sort of a bird's eye summary description here in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. I'm going to read verses 26 through 28, but I want you to notice something as I, as I read. I want you to notice the fact that in this passage, God deals with, through Moses' writing, he deals with man and woman. He talks gender and sexuality. 
He doesn't talk gender and sexuality when he's creating all the other critters. He only talks gender and sexuality when he's creating humankind. And he doesn't even mention gender or sexuality until he gets over there to Noah, Noah's instructions that, hey, Noah, in case you don't know, you need a, a boy dog and a girl dog so you guys can survive this flood and make some more dogs. Okay, That's the only the next time. But right here, there's some airtime given to sexuality because sexuality matters. Male and female. We're not, uh, this, this has a, a sideways inference about the, the conversation about fluidity of sex and, and gender, um, about um, the, the notion that it might be negotiable. Okay, it seems very clear here two genders were created on the sixth day, and this, I think, is pretty foundational in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to unpack this passage of verse at a time with just a few observations. Then God said, Let us make man in our image... After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay, we're looking for clues in answering this question of superiority or inferiority, or equality. Are man and woman equal? Here's a few clues just from this passage. The passage says, let us make man in our image... Man is sort of the football there. Keep your eye on the football. After our likeness and let them have dominion. Okay? Now, man in this case is man that would be kind of considered like mankind. Let us make mankind in our image and let them have dominion. We're not just talking about a lot of men in this case. You're going to see specifically he's talking about two things or two beings in particular that populate the them let them have dominion. Okay, we're going to figure out who the them is in the next passage. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Okay, remember, we're looking for clues of superiority or inferiority or quality. From this passage, we can glean, first of all, the them mentioned in 26 is a him mentioned in 27, which is fleshed out and explained here in verse 27 as male and female. Okay, we're talking male and female. And he created this him or them, male and female, in the image of God. It wasn't just man created in the image of God. Man and women, man and woman were created in the image of God. That's important, man and woman. Both male and female were created in the image of God. Okay, so so far in this passage, there's no sign of superiority or inferiority. Okay, they look pretty equal so far. Sounds pretty equal so far. Let's look at verse 28 and see what happens next. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let me just consider first God blessing them. He didn't just bless Adam. Okay, for anybody that might be carrying a thought or a notion of superiority of male over female, hopefully you can begin to see something coming into shape right here where God blessed male and female. He blessed man and woman. Let's see what he says next. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given 
you, man and woman, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you, man and woman, shall have them for food. God said to them, man and woman, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. The cultural mandate is what we called this a couple of weeks ago. This was given not just to Adam, but it was given to Adam and Eve, to man and woman, because God said it to them. Okay, let me just kind of gather this up for you so you can kind of see it. Male and female so far bear the divine glory equally. Is that good? Y'all like seeing that? I hope so. I like seeing that. Man and woman together bear the divine glory equally. Male and female were blessed equally. And male and female, man and woman, were given the cultural mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, subdue, and to have dominion. Sounds really very equal, doesn't it? Man, I hope we're all agreeing. That's a no-brainer. Obvious. But now when we get into chapter 2, things look a little bit different. Chapter 2, we considered this passage last week, I think, beginning in verse 17. This is the more detailed account of the creation event of man and woman. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, in this case, he's not talking about mankind. There's a definite article in front of that. He said he's talking about the man, the only man, a guy named Adam. He put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded Adam, the man, the man, the only man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam. There's nobody else he's talking to at that point. He's just talking to Adam. We know that for sure by the next verse. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man, Adam, the only man, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay. So far in chapter 1, we're seeing pictures of equality. But here in chapter 2, we see some pictures that suggest that there's some different roles. In chapter 2, so far, in verses 15 through 17, you see a picture of the the, the stewardship or the the commands regarding stewardship of the garden and the boundaries involved in that were given to the man, given to Adam. And in the next verse, I will make the man, this man, this man, Adam, a helper suitable for him. Now, here's what's interesting in these first couple of of chapters. Chapter 1 develops the picture of equality. Chapter 2, though, develops the picture of different roles within an environment of equality where one leads and one follows and helps. I want to ask you this question before I continue answering this question with what I hope is going to be the, the home run explanation. It just really is, and I'm really excited about it. But I want to ask you this question. Does your understanding of equality... Or does your objection to the notion of these different um, uh, ways that a man and a woman are to serve in a marriage, does your understanding of equality, listen, leave room for different roles within equality? I hope it does. I hope you don't think that get, get crossways when you go to work thinking that things are out of sort, that someone, uh, like your boss at work, for example, as you pull up in the parking lot at L3, 
L3 is just an easy target because it's right here, and a lot of y'all work at L3. So you pull up in the parking lot at L3, and you get out of your car. You get out of your, um, what is the uh, profile for the, you get out of your, your Honda Odyssey. <laughs> and, and you got your pocket protector, and you're walking in there. I can totally pick on the L3 guys because, you know, I'm just, just kidding. But you're walking in there, and you see your boss who's like the next, le- next tier up or two or three tiers up, or you see the main guy. I don't even know who the main guy is at L3. You see him, and I hope you're not thinking, oh, he's so superior to me. <laughs> you don't think that way at work, so why would we bring that into the home? I hope as you walk by the bathroom and you hear somebody in there cleaning the bathroom, custodial, doing custodial work, I hope you don't walk by there thinking, I'm so superior to them as they serve in a different role. I hope that you have that mindset at work. Whatever role that people serve in, man, you're equally human and equally valued and equally important. So can you consider that at home? All right, now let me show you where I think this, what what might be a lot of help. That might be a little bit of help, but I think this might be a lot of help. And this to me is one of my favorite topics, the topic of the Trinity. Okay, you might be wondering, how in the world is the Trinity going to inform this issue? And how is the Trinity relevant? Is Homeboy about to go into like a seminary lesson on, on us right now? No, I'm not. I'm about to talk about something that's so practical and so available and so right here in front of you. And I think it's really going to give you some help in answering this question of, of equality and roles. Okay, let me just give you a little bit of a, a, a glimpse into the nature of our God from John. I'm going to share a few passages with you, and I want you to just listen. Okay, You may jot the passages down, but just listen, and listen for who's doing what in these passages. Okay, Of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A bunch of Christians in the room. That's what makes us Christian, is we believe in a triune God. So let's, let's talk about our triune God for a minute. Let's keep him, him in view as I read these passages, and look for what I think is going to develop here that's going to help you make sense of this question. Okay, um, And I'm asking this question, can the nature of God help us make sense of the concept of equality within different roles? Okay, Listen to this passage. John chapter 5, verse 36. The works, Jesus says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Okay, I'm going to read that again. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Okay? Just gather up right off the bat. The very first notion there is that the Father sent the Son. God the Father sent God the Son, and he gave him some stuff to do. Okay? And he gave him some stuff to say. Okay? Now, here's the next passage. John chapter 12, verse 49. This is Jesus speaking again. For I have not spoken on my own authority... But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Okay, so, so far we're talking about the Father and the Son. We haven't talked about the Holy Spirit yet. But you still, hopefully you see what's developing here with Father and Son. Father, God the Father, sent the Son and he went. God the Father commanded the Son, and the Son obeyed. 
The father has a role there so far of sending, and the father has a role of commanding. Okay, God the Father sent God the Son. God the Father commanded God the Son. Let's see what happens next in verse four, or chapter 14, verse 28. You heard me say to you, this is Jesus, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Okay, the Son has demonstrated so far in the going when sent, in the obeying when commanded, that he is reckoning God the Father as greater than God the Son. Hopefully you realize you're getting a clue so far where I'm going in this. Because I'm pointing out on purpose, I'm referring to God the Father and God the Son as both God. Okay, let's consider and invite in the Holy Spirit. God the Son sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit obeys and bears witness. Listen to this passage in John chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, so we can bring in there this role, the Son's role we can add in is this role of sending, and the Holy Spirit's role is the role of going and bearing witness. Okay, so we're just gathering up so far the Father's role of sending, the Father's role of commanding, the Son's role of going, the Son's role of obeying, the Son's role of then sending the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's role of going and bearing witness. God the Holy Spirit, that is. Now, the reason I went through all that is because I think this has some beautiful insight for us on the different roles within marriage in an environment of equality. I, don't, I, I, hope, you, I hope the folks that are in this room have enough understanding of God, Father, Son, and Spirit to realize that God the Son isn't less God than God the Father. Can y'all agree to that? You understand that God the Holy Spirit isn't less God than God the, the, the Son or God the Father. They are equally God, yet they are serving in different roles and effectively a functional hierarchy. Some are commanding and some are going. Some are sending and some are going and some are commanding and some are obeying. They beautifully illustrate what we're talking about here in the home. Listen to this passage from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... Colossians chapter 2 says about Jesus, he says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's not half God. He's not two-thirds God. He's fully God. Though he's in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son, though fully God, obeys the Father and is subject to him, submits to his leadership, fully God, yet cooperating joyfully within a functional hierarchy. This concept of the Trinity isn't just for seminary classrooms. It's for living rooms, people. It's for dens. It's for that wife that's looking in the mirror and saying, why again am I supposed to follow this guy's leadership who's so on my nerves right now? You can go, oh, oh, 
I'm serving in that role because God illustrates it for us. He shows us how to do that, and we're made in his image. So if I'm going to walk in that, I'm simply being an image bearer of a God that serves in different roles and yet is fully God and is equal. Man, I think this travels. I love the thought that we just spent some time talking about the nature of God is shedding light on the nature of the relationship between husbands and wives and wives and husbands. I think this is for Christian wives who are saying, now why am I joyfully following and gladly submitting to my equal again? This is good medicine. Now, does this charge to Christian wives? There's our question we dealt with. Does this charge to Christian wives to submit to their husbands mean that men are superior to women? I hope you've recognized so far that no, it doesn't, not by a mile. Men are not superior to women. It means that men and women are real equals, serving in different roles as husband and wife, as image bearers of a God who does the same. Man, I hope that helps somebody. I hope that helps. Oh, here's the second question. Could this have simply been a cultural command for Christian wives in ancient Ephesus? Okay, let me kind of give you a map, too, for these next few minutes. Because I know listening is like currency, and I want to be mindful of how much currency I've already used. (laughs) And you might be thinking, "Eh, my bank account is going to be closed if all four are getting that kind of treatment. That was the most thorough treatment of that one question. Okay, this one is the next most. And then the third is really light, and the last one's home base. So you're just in the home stretch, so you can hang in there. Okay? So here, listening currency. Uh, hopefully, uh, you'll, you'll have some left here for the next the rest of this. The second question, could this have simply been a cultural command for Christian wives in ancient Ephesus? Okay, here's a couple of just side thoughts. We're going to get to a passage here, so you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But here's a couple of side thoughts while you're turning there. Could this just have been a cultural command for Christian wives in ancient Ephesus to submit to their husbands? Maybe it was just an ancient cultural thing. Well, let me just say this. It could have been. It could have just been an ancient thing meant for 2,000 years ago. But I want to suggest to you that's highly unlikely. First of all, I think it's unlikely because I shared a few weeks ago on a Sunday dedicated to the whole morning dedicated to understanding the context of the ancient Ephesus that uh, it wasn't just Christian wives that submitted to their own husbands. Pagan wives submitted to their own husbands. 2,000 years ago in ancient Ephesus, wives submitted to their husbands, period. It was a cultural expectation. It was a social norm. So given that, it would seem kind of unnecessary for Paul then to tell Christian wives that they needed to do what was already normative. You guys need to submit to your husbands like everybody else is. That seemed like wasted ink. Why would he even bother with that? If it's only a cultural standard calling them to something that was cultural, wouldn't that be kind of superfluous? Another side thought, and then we're going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, if someone would want to call the responsibility of wives and submitting to their husbands archaic and dated, if somebody might feel like, you know, certainly we're more refined and enlightened now, aren't we? Isn't that kind of primitive, that whole notion? Then I would wonder if he or she would want to do the same with the rest of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Would you also call archaic and dated and unnecessary the notion of a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church? No, we don't need that stuff anymore. That's archaic and primitive. Any wives in here think that's primitive? 
Man, I, I don't think so. I'm loving that. Or how about the next one about kids uh, obeying their parents? <laughs> Is that a primitive idea? Uh, some kids in here are saying, yeah, yeah. Let's go crazy. Man, I don't think so. I don't think so. But let me, let's get to some substance here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think we can look to this passage. This is a wonderful satellite to help us answer this question. Um, I use the, the, the term satellite often, and I haven't defined it in a long time. So let me just take two seconds to define satellite. A satellite passage is a passage that we can go to to help shed light on a topic or shed light on a home base passage, like Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? And the more satellites we grab that are faithfully handled, the more robust our place where we're standing, the more sure we can be of where we're standing. Uh, years and years ago, when GPS units first came out, uh, we were issued one in the Marine Corps in a boat raid company, and it was like the size of a phone book. And it had a big strap you put around your neck, and the thing was like, weighed like 20 pounds. And we're in a Zodiac boat trying to read this thing, you know, and, and in the ocean, okay? And waves, and you're trying to read this thing. You turn this thing on, it'd make a noise. And, you know, who knows what kind of radio, radioactivity we're getting in this, you know? You turn that thing on, and you sit here and look at it for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's how long it would take it to get three satellites. It wouldn't give you a reading until you had three satellites because it needed three to triangulate to tell you where you were, Okay? So the more satellites that were launched into space, the faster we would get a reading and the more robust the reading. You could get within 10 feet or 10 meters of where the thing was telling you. You get pretty confident about where you're standing. So that's, a, that's something we do in a sermon. So if you're wondering why we go out all these passages, we're grabbing satellites because it's going to help us triangulate to know where we're standing is a good, secure, true place. Okay, so this is a really great satellite in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the passage and briefly explain what's going on here. Remember, we're asking this question, could this have simply been a cultural thing? Wives submitting to their husbands. Now I commend, commend you, verse 2, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ... The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay. It, it, you're likely, uh, listen, I studied that passage a lot, and I'm still, it's a baffling passage. It's a tricky passage. So let me see if I can, dis, like, like, can assemble sort of the gist of it. Um, uh, let me figure out how I want to do this. Save my slide. You didn't put that up yet, did you? Okay. I'm going to, I have a slide. This, and I have my pointer. We're going to, this is a pointer kind of thing, so we're going to need a pointer. All right. Let me, just, let me just summarize it for you so far. The Corinthian wives here in verse 16 tells us that the Corinthian wives are being contentious. Okay? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The Corinthian wives here in this passage, Paul's addressing them because they're being contentious. And they're being contentious by not wearing a head covering when they're married. Okay, if that just sounds like bizarre to you right now, like what in the world does that have to do with anything? It's because it's not part of, part of our cultural standard. Okay? Paul is addressing these wives 
these ancient feminists is really it's what they are. Feminism's not a new thing. It's at least 2,000 years old. Um, and basically what's going on here is a married woman going without a head covering. It might be a scarf, you know, might, I don't know what other kind of headgear, but it might be something, you know, something like the Kentucky Derby kind of hat, you know, crazy hats, whatever it is. Um, a married woman going without a head covering would be like a married woman on Facebook saying, indicating on her little about section that, that she's single and interested. I mean, is anybody scandalized by that right now? Right? Like if you know one of your buddies and you're like, hey, man, oh, yeah, his wife friended me. Oh, what's going on with her? And you go to her about section and she says single and interested in men. You'd be like, what? <laughs> That's what a married woman not wearing a head covering is like. It'd be like saying, I'm available and my husband's a chump. That's what it's saying. It's, it's not even treating her husband with dignity. It's beyond a cultural faux pas and is instead overt rebellion against her husband. Okay, That was a problem in this context, in this culture 2,000 years ago because it was expected that a wife was to cover her head. Now let me show you something that's really cool in this passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it again. Um, Actually, I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to show you the slides because the slides, I think, make better sense of it because the way it unfolds in the first part of this passage is kind of tricky. So let's get that first slide. It says in this passage that Christ, see, I don't need this, but, but Jeff Willingham said I should use it on these submission sermons. So I got him in a lot of trouble with his wife last week. She said, did you tell him something? But I totally didn't, or he didn't. Yeah, so I just, I just I, I freed that up, you know, I brought that into light. All right, Christ is the head of every man, a.k.a. husbands. That's what we're talking about here, husbands and wives. Okay, the passage also says, hit the next one, that every man or the husbands are the head of the wife. Okay, and hit the next one. And that God is the head, or God, a.k.a. the father in this passage, is the head of Christ. Okay, that is the argument that's used to address these contentious wives. Go hit the, hit the timeless message. This is a timeless design. Okay, this design right here doesn't change. God the Father is the head of the Son, period. Okay, and Christ is the head of the husband, period. That will never change. And the husband is the head of the wife. And that will never change this side of glory, this side of heaven. And we're talking about a timeless design here. And Paul appeals to this timeless design when he addresses, go ahead and show the rest of that slide, a temporal issue of the wife not covering her head, that the wife should cover her head. Now show that little thing underneath. That's a temporal design. Okay? He uses a timeless design to appeal to the wives to move well within a temporal Design. I think this passage, this satellite, nicely illustrates the different roles and the difference between a cultural standard and one that's not. Okay, He is using something, he's appealing to here to something that does not change uh, in regards to culture. The timeless design is, is good and useful in every, time, every climb and place, including 2017 in Greenville, Texas, including in Iceland. Right? Including among 24 to 35-year-olds. Man, he's talking about a design that travels this thing on the left here. 
this relationship between the man and the wife or the husband and the wife. So I don't think we're talking about a cultural issue. You can take those down. I don't think we're limiting this concept and this, this command to just a cultural issue. Could this have simply been a cultural command for Christian wives in ancient Ephesus? I hope not. I really hope not because it would be tragic to imagine that the saints for 2,000 years since ancient Ephesus would have only their imaginations to visualize what it looks like for Christ or for the church to enjoy our Savior and to follow and submit to our Savior. All right, the third question. This one will be a little bit quick. The third question is, what is the Christian wife to do with this command if the husband isn't leading well? I should rephrase this question. What is the, the, the Christian wife to do with the husband when he's not leading well? Because I don't know of a man in this room that's married that doesn't at times disappoint. This might be helpful for every wife or wife to be in this room because there, I can make you this promise. There will be times where if it hasn't happened yet, your husband will disappoint. So here's an encouragement. Remember first that God joined you together. I say it in every wedding. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God joined you together. And I realize he may be far less than your ideal. He may be far from your expectations. But if you don't start with the notion that he's God's gift to you, you will never get off the ground in this question. You will ride the roller coaster of his performance from day to day or week to week. So my charge and encouragement to wives here is get over feeling gypped. Get over it. If you're going to hold that out over him and you're going to resent him and you're going to resent your God, let's start at the beginning place here and say, God gifted me this man with all of his problems and all of his issues and all of his frailties. That's a great place to start. And let me give you, wives, just a counterintuitive encouragement. It's an encouragement, not a promise. It's, it's a likelihood. Let me, let me put it to you this way. An encouragement to wives in submitting to your husbands, it has a way of growing him into being worth something. I, I hit on this last week, but I can't hit on it too much because wives, a lot of you just like, I can't believe that. I'm not, I was following you that far, but I don't, I'm not going there. Man, you don't know how much power you have in the life of that man. You don't know how much influence you have. You don't have any idea. God uses the encouragement of a loving wife who's looking for the commendable, the praiseworthy, and the lovely stuff in the life of a frail fellow to inspire him to be more than he is. I want to encourage you wives to have Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 on speed dial. Listen to it. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence in that man, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'm telling you, you, you have no idea what you can do to that man if you begin to live that way, wives. You might think, well, man, I don't want to reward mediocrity. I don't want to praise the guy when every now and again he does something worth commendable or whether it's commendable or praiseworthy because then he'll just be satisfied with being sorry and lazy. It doesn't work that way. The rest of the guys in this room, let me just let you in on this, wives. The rest of the guys in this room are just like me. They're praise junkies when it comes from our wives. We love hearing from our wives how awesome we are. And it doesn't make us lazy. It does the opposite. It makes us want more. 
It makes us want to please and, and, and bless our wives even more. Wives, let me set you free in this encouragement to know that you can love that man and respect that man and admire that man and praise that man into being worth something. It's got to start first, though, at you thanking God that God gave him to you. It's got to start there. Get over feeling gypped. Trust God's providence and design. It'll bless you. And you'll have a husband that you'll see transformed in front of you. It's not a promise. It's a likelihood. It's a likelihood. Okay. The last question. Last question. Question number four. Let me find it. How far does this submission thing go? Is the wife called to just say yes to everything? That's a big question, isn't it? It's one that maybe a lot of you have been wrestling with. What does this actually mean? How does this play out? Let me just encourage you with this thought. You can turn to, uh, Gen- go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to um, read 1 Peter chapter 3 for you to keep you, uh, save a little currency. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's where we're going to land this morning. How far does this submission thing go? Is the wife called to just say yes to everything? Let me point out to you in the Ephesians passage where we started this morning, I've looked for a caveat in there. I've looked for an out. I've really looked for it, wives, because I really want to find something in there that gives you an out for when he's not really worth following. But it says everything. It says, wives submit in everything to your husbands. I looked for it, and it's just not there. There's not a limit expressed there, but I think there is a limit. Okay, one verse can be completely true, yet it won't necessarily reveal the truth completely. Okay, can you see that and know that? That verse is completely true, yet it's not revealing the truth completely. And I think this First Peter passage, I'll read it to you, and you can think on this. Uh, this may help. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I think that's the clue to the how far does this thing go. This passage tells us that wives are to be subject even to unbelieving husbands. Even to unbelieving husbands. And what potentially will win those husbands over is noted. The respectful and pure conduct. So where's the line? It's the line that takes you, wife, to where you're not moving respectfully and you're not moving in purity. If a husband, even an unbelieving husband, or even a believing husband, calls you to move in a way that is not respectful and pure, that's the line. That's the line. Peter encourages these wives, submit to your husbands, and he goes on to say, like Sarah did to her husband, Man, he uses some examples that are baffling if you know the story of Abram and and Sarai. But man, this should give us a sense of where the line is. Knowing that it's your respectful and pure conduct that may win them over. In other words, the wife can be subject to and submit to her husband, even an unbelieving husband, and yet not follow him into sin and impurity. There is a line. Let me encourage you, wives, this call to submission, let me set you free. This call to submission is not an absolute surrender of your will. 
Instead, listen, this is a great definition. A, a, a book that I'm studying uh, provided this definition. I can get you the resource if you'd like to read it. It's a disposition to yield. That, that's what God, I think, is expecting from you, ladies. A disposition to yield and an inclination to follow his leadership. A disposition to yield and an inclination to follow his leadership. I think what may give um, some ladies some comfort in that whole concept this morning is a, a, a little side note. I shared this in life group this week and saw the light go on in a couple people. I said, I think we need to share this Sunday because it'll be helpful. I think what will give you ladies some comfort is, know, in, it is, is knowing that it's your husband who will be held accountable for how and where and when and in what way and what level of faithfulness the family moves. The husband will be held accountable. The wife can find some sense of peace and protection knowing that, that she is in some ways under his umbrella as God is going to hold that man accountable for how he's led that family. That'll give you some, some ability in, to move freely within his leadership. I was thinking about the weight of the consequences of the fall being a beautiful example of this. And this is where we're going to end this morning. So I'm going to read this passage. And I think it's, it, it, it's, it, it's insightful. It'll give us some sense of the difference in the way God treated Adam and the way he treated Eve in regards to the fall and how he's going to treat the husband differently than he's going to treat the wife come judgment. Listen to this. After the fall, you know how it all goes. Uh, God addresses the serpent, and then he addresses the woman. He says, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, so, so far, uh, as a consequence of the fall, the wives get painful childbirth. Big deal. Right? What's the big deal about that? I mean, it's over pretty quick, I think. It's not. <laughs> then the men, see what Adam gets as the result of the fall. Look, listen to this. Uh, to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. A wife gets like nine months. And then a day or so, six, 12 hours, whatever, of labor, big deal. But the man, all the days of his life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Eve gets pain in childbirth. Adam gets a cursed earth fighting back against him with thorns and thistles. He gets sweat-soaked life, eating bread until he dies. I hope you see a difference in approach here. I mean, it was Eve that took of the fruit in the first place. And yet, Adam, man, he gets the full weight of the consequences. You know I'm joking about the childbirth thing. I hope you know. I've been rare for three of them. I know they're not easy. Man, I hope that gives ladies some sense that, hey, I can hide under his umbrella and know 
the umbrella of protection, leadership of this husband, and know that God's going to judge him and hold him accountable if we're moving in a way that God doesn't approve of in the long run. If it's clearly a departure from God's will, if it's clearly a departure from submitting to Christ, if submitting to your husband means you can't submit to Christ, then that's the line that you've crossed and don't cross that line. But if it's within that, you've got a beautiful protection in following your husband. How far does this submission thing go? Is the wife called to just say yes to her husband in everything? The Christian wife submit to her husband, should submit to her husband in everything. Up until the point where submission to her husband would mean a departure from submission to Christ. She should cultivate a disposition to yield and an inclination to follow his leadership. So it's all pretty natural so far it sounded, all right? Just a lot of ladies I suspect in this room, the answers to those questions and what we've talked about last week, you're like, man, yeah, this is really easy. It comes naturally to me. Right? I'm sure ladies in this room are thinking, man, if I'm going to be really honest, I can appreciate this, but this doesn't come very naturally for me. Some of you may be thinking, I will never be able to do this because I know how I'm made. I know how my personality works. I I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm just going to point out to you, this is a closing thought and a closing thought that I hope will help. It may help all of us because consider all manner of things that we may struggle with. In Genesis chapter 3, it's one of the consequences that I just read for the woman. I developed and pointed out that there's pain in childbirth, but also to the woman, he said, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, guys, uh, let me break it to you. That doesn't mean that your, the, the wife's desire will be that she really, really wants you. Okay, that's bad news. What it means is this is the first picture of the nagging wife right here. Her desire will be to control you. Wives, if you want to know what's going to come natural to you, just as natural as thorns and thistles fighting back as man's trying to scratch at earth and scratch out a living one step forward, two steps back, what's going to come really natural for you is that you want to control your husband. You want to nag him. You want to fix him. You want to correct him. You want to groom him into the man that you think he ought to be, that you think he ought to be. That's what comes natural for you. If you're thinking so far yet, last Sunday and this Sunday, none of this comes naturally for me, well, duh, it's a consequence of the fall. Your desire will be for your husband. And he, guess what his desire will be? His natural bent will be to just rule you. And that's not good either. That's not good either. But here's the good news. is Because of what Christ has done for us, we don't have to live according to what comes natural. (laughs) Amen? We don't have to live according to what comes natural for us. Man, that ought to be the best news we've heard all morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, Our old self, our fallen self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Man, Christ's work has freed you, wives, from the natural bent. Christ's work has freed you from being enslaved to what comes naturally. He won you. He purchased you. He freed you and liberated you from the shackles of the natural. Ladies and men, if your natural bent is to rule and her natural bent is to nag and control, man, y'all have been won from that. 
you don't have to move that way anymore. Let me just encourage you in this closing thought. Submitting to your husband is to walk in what Christ has won for you. Let's pray. God, I pray for, I pray for, I pray that what we've considered in these last few minutes, Lord, I pray that it'll be a help for our ladies in here, our wives-to-be, or um, anybody that may be struggling with some of these questions. Lord, I pray that it'll give some insight into the wonderful value of a woman, the beauty of, the, of man and woman being made in your image. Lord, I pray will be something that inspires us, that inspires men in this room to cherish our ladies to be tender and gentle and patient and understanding with our ladies. Lord, I pray too that it will give ladies just a sense of peace and comfort in knowing that you have a sweet and special role for them as helpers of their husbands. Lord, I pray too that all of us in here, married, single, divorced, whatever our circumstance, young kid, whatever it might be, that all of us can enjoy together that we have a wonderful groom that never disappoints. We don't have to have any caveats. We don't have to have any outs. God, I pray that will be fuel for us as we walk in the design that you're putting in front of us from Ephesians. I pray for real purchase in the home, Lord. I pray, that, I pray this week that a wife, as she might be struggling with the thought of following her husband, Lord, I pray that she will actually have a conscious thought about the equality of Father, Son, and Spirit serving in different roles and how she beautifully has the opportunity to illustrate those different roles within an environment of equality. God, I pray that the Trinity will actually find some purchase this week in a real, tangible way. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for a timeless design. I'm thankful that we can hold on to something that doesn't phase in, that doesn't become passe. God, I'm thankful that we can grip this as we grip you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.